And let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, whose will it is to restore all things to your well-beloved Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under this most precious and gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, it's, uh, our, we have already sung about restoration and redemption. The um, lectionary passages, uh, even out of Joel, is about restoration of God's people. And today we're going to look at a story of restoration and, re- and redemption. You know, we, we have a fascination of all things new. Um, we live in a disposable society. One of the greatest marketing uh, advantages any product has is if it puts that little starburst on it and says new in it. And then people want it. And you have to, you, and you, a lot of times people will, they, they want to market something as new, though maybe hardly anything has changed, in order to get your attention because you're ready to do away with the old and pick up the new. It's just kind of the way we've been wired and the way we're geared. I appreciate uh, when I find people who are willing to invest the time to bring life back into something that has been uh, discarded or maybe is you know thought to be dead and, and out of life, but somebody brings it to, to life and polishes it and, and uh, makes it shine again and restores it to its original glory. Now, whether that be a, a house, an automobile, a tractor, or a piece of uh, equipment, I, I appreciate when I see that. Well, this restoration of that kind of... Uh, restoring something to its original purpose, bringing back that original glory for which it was intended, is the story in this passage today. Um, in this passage, this restoration leads to proclamation. So it's, it's not just a, a restoration for restoration's sake. This restoration is leading to proclamation of the Lord's glory as it is established in the renewed man. Jesus' encounter with people begins with a uh, confrontation, or, or we could say a call, but the, the call slash confrontation, and then restoration, and finally a commission. So we're going to look initially here at uh, confrontation. If we look in verse 26, it says, uh, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So you get, if you just picture the Sea of Galilee, on the western side is the um, Jewish population. Um, on the eastern side, this is where the Gentiles would hang out. This is, this is the place where those who did not worship the one true God, filled with pagan and idolatry, uh, that's where they uh, stayed. The southern area uh, after that, so if you had over on the eastern side and then south of that would be called the Decapolis, so the, the area of the ten cities. Now the exact location that this would have taken place is not uh, it's really not known, but it's essentially across the Sea of Galilee from the town of Galilee. So that gets us close enough in the region. And up to this point, as we have seen one passage after the other where Jesus is ministering, he's ministering among the Jews. And there would have been some Gentiles uh, interspersed there, but this is where he starts visiting a, uh, a different place altogether. The Jews had been expecting a Redeemer to come. The Gentiles did not. And so now he's in the land of the Gentiles. And um, this story is about an unexpected encounter with Jesus. And then through that, restoration comes to this new land and this new people. 
Verse 27 says, When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had lived out, he'd lived and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So, this, in, our pre, in our previous passage, this is the, the calming of the sea. So, Jesus had been in ministry. He was tired, and he got into the boat, and he, he, he napped even through this great storm that came. And we talked about that. And so, they've just crossed the sea. They get there, and Jesus is met by this madman. And this madman, he probably looked, uh, from the descriptions, he surely would have looked very scary. Um, and so, there's there's this understanding that he's like, you know, a monstrous kind of man because of the, as the story unfolds, because of those demons that are inside of him. And because the demons inside of him, as the story explains, he was, he was a menace to society, so he was an outcast. And so he lived out of the town. He had been cast out of the city, and he lived on the outskirts among the caves or the tombs where they would bury the dead. Today, we might see somebody like this, and we would simply call him homeless. But it may not be a lot different. The demons inside this man, though, manifested themselves with supernatural strength. So, as the story is told, he would have been bound with chains in order to subdue him. But he, with all his strength, could break the chains. And so there's no binding him. And perhaps he's like this bloody, scabbed kind of mess because of where he's been beating himself and cutting himself along on the rocks because of what the demons in him are trying to get him to do, and he's trying to free himself of these demons. He was, he was violent and needed to be separated. So he's living out among the tombs, away from the people. He, he uh, had been, um, apparently, in the city, but then they have moved him out of the city. So Jesus sees him and addresses his problem as something spiritual. And he does the same thing with us. Jesus, Jesus is pretty consistent in his approach. And I find that to be just, and, and you, know, you know this is true, this is, and you're not, this is not yet your aha moment, uh, but I think it's kind of interesting that we are willing, we as the church, we as a society, but we as the, ch- as the church, part of the greater church, we're willing quickly to address something on the surface, but many times we're scared or we're so educated, so we're so intelligent that we don't see something as this problem that the person's dealing with as spiritual. We see it as, as mainly a physical issue or a societal conditioning issue or a problem from their heritage some trauma that they had grown up to. This is how this person reacts. And so we've got all kinds of explanations that remove the spiritual altogether. Jesus didn't enter this man into the, the local garrison's homeless shelter. He didn't enter him into a 12-step program. He didn't enter him into all kinds of things. He addressed his spiritual problem. I think this is important for us, and I, and I understand this is a weird story. This guy appears very weird. And that makes it a little difficult for us to relate to. And so we need to, we, we think that that's not exactly a one-for-one exchange. So if we run into somebody with all kinds of problems, what is their greatest need? What is their greatest problem? And we don't think it's a spiritual issue. I'll argue that uh, all of our problems are spiritual issues. They begin in the spiritual, 
They manifest themselves in the physical or the mental or the whatever. So, some time ago I had said that uh, in an ordination, uh, it wasn't really an ordination exam, but it was an interview with other pastors, and I had you had to write something. I don't, I don't remember what this was, but somewhere in my writings, I had said something about what you really have. If you have problems with marriage, your problem's not really a marriage problem. You have a gospel problem. And so they questioned me on that. Uh, these are other pa- they, these people who are already ordained. Are asked, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I think the whole thing's a matter of repenting and believing, repenting and believing. And we repent and believe and come to faith and, and in our kind of culture, we're worried about salvation, but there's more still to repent of, and there's still more to believe in. And if I uh, am having marital problems, I am putting my faith and trust or looking for satisfaction in other things other than Jesus. And so if I could get all I need from Jesus, I'm willing to pour myself out to my spouse, whether I get anything in return or not. So my marital problem is a spiritual problem. It's a gospel problem. Jesus sees this man who is a maniac coming at him, and he says, your problem's a spiritual problem. I think it's a lesson for us that we need to kind of hone in on. Evidently, there's something that's very attractive about Jesus. Maybe it's just simply because he's a stranger. Maybe it's because he's the stranger who is coming to this land. But this man then runs to him, and there may have been some sense of hope. And of course, this man's desperate, so maybe he's looking for hope anywhere he can get it. But he runs to Jesus. Now, the reason this is a huge confrontation is because of the evil one, because of Satan's attack on the image of God. So Satan hates God. We, we know that. At least, you know, intellectually we know that. And so Satan hates God, and so Satan and his demons will attack the image of God so that they can distort, disturb, destroy the image of God from bearing that image so that God then does not receive glory, so that God is not glorified in this image bearer, meaning his people. This is their job. Um, However, when we're talking that way, and we've already talked about this unsightly man who was evidently scary, one wouldn't have to be so unsightly still to be possessed by demons or to be controlled by demons. One could be a normal person in society. One could be even in the church. Now, hear what I'm saying. One could be in the physical church. I don't think one's a true believer. I don't think you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and simultaneously be possessed by demons. I just, I just don't think that works. It does, make, does not make any sense to me, and I don't see that in the Bible. But somebody, are, are we aware, people can be in the church and they're not yet saved. People can be in the church and not be regenerated. So this, a person could be in the church even. So they look normal, they look good, according to society, but they are still perhaps possessed by the evil one or his demons. So we, we need to broaden this out so it's not just strange, crazy people with bad hair. It's, it, this, is, this is something that's more significant than that. And the attack of the evil one on the image of God would look like anything that would degrade humanity. Uh, this would be in line with Satan's plan. Whether it be an attitude, a habit, an addiction, a sexually deviant practice, or even a mental preoccupation. Perhaps there's something that you've been struggling with and carrying it around. 
And I'm not using possession here yet. I'm trying to get us to understand the fallen nature of man and the attack of the evil one. And so there could be these things that are, that are damaging the image of God that degrade humanity and are attributed really to the attacks of Satan's demons. And it could be that you're carrying around something and it continues to haunt you. I think then this becomes an extremely important lesson. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can set you free. As you surrender to him in those areas, that's a bit of that repenting and believing. You allow his grace to wash you. You put those things behind you, and you turn to him. With this full attack on the image of God, on this image bearer, this confrontation with God and the evil one was inevitable. It it was just going to happen. So in verse 28, it says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, one commentator suggests, and and I've read this thing before, where um, because you're using somebody's name in the time, the culture, there's this thing where if you use somebody's name, it's an attempt to gain control over them. And there may have been some of that, but I really believe what's going on here is the, the, uh, the demons inside this man really do identify who this Jesus is. You know, and, you know, the crowds that were on the other side of the lake who he's been among ministering are confused. And some have seen this man as the not just a man, but the divine God coming in the flesh. And I think this demon is crying out to him because he knows exactly who he is. Because the Bible says the demons even believe and they shudder. So the demons are attacking this man, the image of God. They're the ones who are um, attacking and making this person, um, they're tormenting him. But in this instance, in the face-to-face with Jesus, and in face-to-face with the Holy One, it is Jesus then who is tormenting them simply by his presence. And so they're quaking inside the man. They really are trembling. And they really do believe. You know, strangely, these these demons believe in God. They believe in the day of judgment. They believe in the abyss. They believe in hell. They believe in those three things. The Jews on the other side of the lake didn't, didn't recognize that much. The church today, a lot of the church today, wouldn't buy into all three of those things. That the evil one knows, <laughs> knows that God exists, knows of the day of judgment, and knows of hell. And therefore, they are trembling. Jesus came to set the captives free, and that's exactly what he did with this man. He calls and restores the dehumanized, the broken, the lost. He calls and confronts, and then he restores. So we're going to look at restoration. Down to verse 30. It says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So Jesus restores by breaking the chains of Satan and releases his people from bondage. It's the spiritual problem. He called the evil spirits out of the man, and he asked the man his name, and he answered Legion. The term Legion refers to um, a regiment of Roman soldiers, which is numbered of 6,000 men. And this doesn't necessarily mean that he had 6,000 demons in him, but he had many, and a lot. And Jesus calls them out and gives them permission to enter these pigs. 
Then those pigs, because they had bartered with him uh, or bargained with him and asked, you know, don't throw us into the abyss. Don't throw us into the, the deep. And, and I, I think this is just a squirrely thing, and I can't still answer it adequately. Why the pigs? Why the pigs still in the lake? Who's, who owned the pigs? What kind of cost did it have to them? Those are the things that are entering my mind as I go through these things. All right, well, I've, I've been through this before. I'm going through it again and again and again. I still haven't, I don't have full answers on that. I do have a couple of different hypotheses about the pigs. But, but because he bargained with them, he, he, he calls them out of the man. They enter the pigs, but then you see those pigs run down and run into the water and drown. So they are into the abyss. Or they're in, they're in holding till final judgment or however that goes. I find this very interesting. But the key piece, before, before we get into worrying about what the pigs are, who are the pigs, and what this cost involved, it's about the man. The, the, the real story is about the restoration of this man. So this man is set free from the um, hounding of these demons, from this possession of the demons. So the demons are, are, are called out of him. And so now this man is just set free. Free at last. He's not going to have to be chained anymore. He is not going to be tormenting people anymore. He's restored. He's restored to his community. He can be among the people of the community again. He's restored to his family. You know, this man didn't just appear. He's got to have family. Now he's restored to his family. He's restored to his friends. And ultimately, he's restored to God. So now he has a relationship with the Most High God, who reached down and turned him and set him free. So this is the most important relationship, and the others flow from that. Let's look at the pigs. 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So this restoration that Jesus brings comes at some sort of cost to the ways of the world. That's the, that's the, this is the picture I get out of this. There's, there's a cost to the restoration that Jesus brings, a cost to the ways of the world. And so this news from the herdsmen, as they were shocked, they, that news spread like wildfire. I bet they were shocked if... if if your livelihood had just been wiped out in this scene, you'd probably want to go and tell somebody too. And so they do. They were likely devastated economically from what had happened. So some would suggest the swine herders would have been compromising Jews who raised pigs to sell the pork to the Gentiles. And this could be, and it sort of makes sense, because that would have been against the law of Moses, and it would have been then right for Jesus to judge them and their, their, their practices by destroying the pigs all at the same time in one fell swoop here. It doesn't make as much sense if they're simply Gentiles raising pigs. If they're Gentiles, this is not against the law of Moses. This is the law of Moses applying to God's people. It's not applying to the Gentiles. And where this doesn't make sense to me is we have two sides of the lake, and on one side is really for the Israelites or the, the, uh, the Jews, and on the other side we have is, is for the, uh, the Gentiles, and that's where, that's where we are. We're in the land of the Gentiles. And it was my understanding that we're coming into this new land. The gospel's kind of like penetrating a new, new area. So, it could be that that's accurate. 
There's just simply not enough information for us to know. And since we don't know who owns the pigs, we really can't say what the deal is. So what's, what's an explanation of what we do see, what we do have, the information that we do have? Well, okay, I think one of the things that, and you know how things have multiple meanings, one meaning, and one we have enough information for, is that there's, a, there's something happening in these pigs that Jesus illustrates what happens in the spiritual realm here in the physical. So with, with, with the word of his mouth, he has calmed the, the seas, he calmed the waves, he calmed the winds. Now he comes and lands this boat here, runs into this demoniac, and with the word of his mouth, he ex- what exercised these demons out of this man, and for us, for his people, for them, for us, to recognize this is real, it wasn't just the healed man sitting in his right mind, the demons entered the pigs, and this is something very physical, to help illustrate what goes on in the spiritual. Jesus is kind of big on this, really, as we go to the table, something physical that's helping us understand what happens on the spiritual. So if that's all this is, I'm, I'm content with that. I, you know, in my mind, I'm still like, who lost all that money? Because that number of pigs, this would have been a big business. But somehow, still, it's the ways of the world, and Jesus' ways are opposed to many ways of the world. And we see that here in 37. You know, what, what happens when that, when that occurs? In 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So, he got into the boat and returned. I think this is interesting, that we have the Most High God coming in the flesh. He comes among people. He exercises these demons. He heals a man. But proper society rejected him and asked him to leave. And they preferred their normal way of life over Jesus' ways. Jesus' ways were threatening their comfortable way of life. What they were used to. What they knew. How they practiced it. How they chose to live. And so they collectively asked him to leave. I know this is a strange story. And that man must be very strange. But that describes us. That describes our land. That describes our community. That when Jesus' ways get in the way of our, our comfort, of, of the norm that we want to do, of the ways we have set as we are our own God, we ask him to leave. And he does. scary part is he does. One of the, one of the places where I realize I'm not like Jesus, you know, I, I'm like, no, I think I'll stay. And I'm going to preach until you are convinced I am the Son of God. It's just in my head, I'm thinking, that's what I'd have done. How could, you, how could you get back in the boat and just leave? His leaving is like a judgment on the people. When the Most High God comes into your, into your town, he should be welcomed. He should be received. He should be loved. He should be honored. He should be worshipped. But he got in the boat and he left. Didn't force himself on this unbelieving community. So let's look next at what he does do. So you know, Jesus calls, he confronts, and he restores, and then he, then he commissions. So in 38... And doesn't this make sense? The man from, and, and your heart's starting to go out to, you're like, what? The man from whom the demons had gone, and who had gone, begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away. So this man's wanting to get in the boat and go with him. This man's a believer. He's in an area where they've just rejected Jesus, and they can't appreciate the fact that they brought healing to this, that Jesus brought healing to him. But this is his community, this is his, these are his friends, these are his family, and 
And he says, I want to leave and I want to go with you. And Jesus said to him, 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And I think this is interesting, and there's more to be made of this, and I'm, I'm going to be out of time, so we won't. But, but it says, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He sees it. He sees it. He gets it. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. We're still confused on that today. Um, I was reading about a, the commissioning of a U.S. Navy ship. Somewhere amongst, amidst the hoopla, it's a great big, it's a huge ordeal. And somewhere in the midst of the hoopla, there's a command that is yelled, and it says, man our ship and bring her to life. Well, without the manning of the ship, the ship is worthless. Without the human beings going onto the boat, the boat is, an, is a worthless vessel. It just sits there. It's useless. Well, it's Jesus in this case who then enters the man and brings life. It's what happens to us. We are a purpose, uh, purposeless people without form and function until he restores us and brings us to life. That's the story of this. When we understand that we have been brought near, that we are entered into his kingdom, then we become part of his family. Look at what Jesus tells the man. Uh, he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. I would think that before this man sent out, that he could be using a little, I don't know, uh, one-on-one evangelism or church evangelism 101, uh, a little training in, in who he is in Christ, a little training in who Jesus is and how he was saved. But that's not how Jesus does it. He just sends him out. And it says that he went on his way proclaiming throughout the city what Jesus had done for him. And this man is a single missionary in this spiritually dry and barren land, the place that rejected Jesus. As Jesus is pushing off the boat, uh, off, off the land into the boat with his disciples, he just tells the man one command. And interestingly, it's really the same command he gives us when he talks about going and making disciples. It's this return to your home and declare what God has done for you. This is something we can do. This is something this man was charged with. I think we can see in the scripture later where Jesus comes back to this region and people bring uh, somebody to him to be healed. So this man's story, this man's witness, this man's proclamation of what has been going on is successful because of what the Lord does in that. But this is our task. It's, very pretty, it's really pretty simple. And I am big on getting us to understand what we believe and why we believe it. And we are so full of information. We're... Our place is not like his in the sense that it's totally dry and devoid of the things of God. There's a lot of mixed signals going on out here. There are a lot of mixed messages going on out here. So I think it's very important that we, we teach and train and disciple what do we believe and why we believe it. Um, how is it that the Lord has saved us so that we can talk intelligently to our friends? But ultimately, the thing that you do know is your story. And how has the Lord changed you? And so the idea that I don't really know how to bring up Jesus to my friends would simply be who you were and who you are now in Jesus. Who did I used to be, and how did Jesus help me through some of these things? Am I a changed person because of Jesus saving me and ridding me of my sins? Am I, is there a transformation that I can point to? Do I see Jesus' work, Jesus' work in me? I think if we're thinking of that, then we say, okay, he did it. He was called to do it. He was charged to do it. I think I could do that. And you say, well, maybe I don't have any credibility. Well, what kind of credibility did this guy have? This guy was the outcast, and everybody knew him. He was in a place where 
he, if he showed up, he would have been a very scary man to be around. Kids would run. It would have been an, a, a bad place. Yet somehow, because of who he is in Christ, he had the credibility to go and spread the message. Chances are good you've not been that same kind of nuisance in your, in your neighborhood. You have more credibility than you're aware. And you have the ability to tell about what the Lord has done for you. How has the Lord confronted you with your demon, with your demons, with your sins? What has he done in you and restored you to bring you to life? Where is it that you had sought the things of death and now you seek the things of life because of what he has done in you? Can you tell about this, about how the Lord in his goodness and in his mercy breathed life into you, brought you to himself, now calls you his own? And is that good news? If that's good news for you, then it's good news for your neighbor. I think you can share that. He calls you his own. You are really in his family. So the charge for us is go, return to your home, and declare how much God has done for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.